Properties in 11 states had hundreds of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 14131413. Thank you for joining me today. Well, some of you out there have been asking, isn't there anything else going on in the world besides this, what is it called? Oh, coronavirus. That's it, right? Yes. Most of you have heard of that by now. Isn't it crazy that I bet pretty much the entire planet has heard of this? I mean, there are a few things like that, <laughs> and, and this is one of them. But you asked, hey, can we talk about something else? Okay, today you are going to get your wish. We won't be focusing on the world economy going into hibernation mode. We won't be focusing on the recession that we are already in. We won't be focusing on the contagion and the exponential growth potential of it and these ludicrous comparisons that some people are putting on social media to the regular flu and things like that. Okay, fine, fine, we won't. We got a great show for you today, folks. This interview that I did just maybe just over a week ago is excellent, and it's a big guest. Former president and CEO of Sotheby's, former chairman of Lehman Brothers Holding Company. That means he was responsible for distributing the assets after the collapse of Lehman Brothers. This is a fascinating interview. You're going to like it, okay? And it's not all about that virus thing, okay? So you get to take a little break from it. Heck, you got enough of that on every other news media out there, okay? So we'll take a break from it. But I do want to announce something. I want to announce, you know, most all of you know and follow my 10 commandments of successful investing. And of course, somewhat sarcastically, there are actually 21 commandments in the 10 commandments. I know, it's like government math here, folks. You know, it's fuzzy math. Anyway, we are about to announce commandment number 22. Drum roll. Should I tell you now? Should I tell you now? Or can you wait for commandment number 22? Maybe we'll talk about it tomorrow. I think we'll keep you in suspense. I think we'll talk about it tomorrow. Because tomorrow will probably play one of the interviews where I talk about this. And you know what? It's actually commandment number 22 to be announced is actually something that relates to another commandment. And it's in the first 10, by the way. It relates to that. But now with the health scare, with COVID-19, there is a new reason to think about this. And actually, I predicted this. And I, I think now this prediction is a kind of an easy one to make. I'm predicting it even more so. And that is this new migration pattern that is going to benefit real estate investors that have been following my plan. Migration patterns will change. This event will change the world for at least a generation. Okay, it will change the world for at least a generation. And remember, 
coronavirus won't be the last viral outbreak. And we've had them before. Fortunately, they weren't as significant as this one, you know, at least not since the Spanish flu 100 years ago. But, you know, we had H1N1, we had the bird flu, the swine flu, right? You know, we've had these things, okay? But this one being far more significant. And this one is going to change a lot of habits. And in my first Ten Commandments, I unknowingly was recommending a tangential part of commandment number 22. And I think we'll announce that tomorrow. But this is a, this interview does not give me a lot of time to do a big intro today. So look, everything's in the news. We're going to be covering more of this stuff. We're going to have Chris Martinson on Flashback Friday. He's been covering the coronavirus thing extensively, but we're going to do a flashback show because he's been on the show several times. Peak Prosperity, Chris Martinson, he did the crash course many years ago, and I think you'll find Flashback Friday interesting as well. But tomorrow for Wednesday, we will go back into it. We will talk about commandment number 22 and how it's going to benefit all of you who have been following my investing philosophy. So that is coming tomorrow, but today we got a fantastic interview. You're really going to like this interview. So enjoy it as we talk about Sotheby's, as we talk about Lehman Brothers, and we look back on what history just 10 years ago can teach us about what we are going into right now. What we are going into right now is a different flavor for sure, but definitely a global recession. So I think this will be um, educational to you from a historic perspective for sure. If you need us, reach out to us, jasonhartman.com. That's jasonhartman.com or 1-800-HARTMAN. Get a hold of one of our investment counselors. Have them help you make adjustments to your portfolio so that you can invest properly to not only survive, but thrive in pandemic times. JasonHartman.com. Okay, let's go to the interview. It's my pleasure to welcome Michael Ainsley. He is the former president and CEO of Sotheby's and the National Trust for Historic Preservation. He's former senior director of Lehman Brothers and then became chairman of the Lehman Brothers Holding Company, or the Lehman Brothers Estate, if you will, and oversaw the sale and disposition of the company's remaining assets to Barclays. He's author of a new book, A Nose for Trouble, Sotheby's, Lehman Brothers, and My Life of Redefined adversity. Michael, welcome. How are you? Thank you. I'm very well. Nice to be with you, Jason. It's a pleasure to have you. Where are you located? I live in Palm Beach, Florida. That's where I am today. Well, we're neighbors because I live in Palm Beach, Florida, too. So <laughs> small world. It Fantastic. is small. It is a beautiful, beautiful day here, isn't it? It really good, is. Good stuff. Boy, I bet you have some stories to tell. Now, Sotheby's was before Lehman's. I'm, Lehman, I, I'm guessing, right? That's correct. I was right. a CEO of Sotheby's from the mid-80s to the mid-90s. Fantastic. And when someone says Sotheby's, most people think of the auction house. Nowadays, in the retail world, we see the real estate company. Was it sort of those two businesses? Or I'm guessing there were even more businesses. Well, there was also a finance company, a financial services business. But by far, the majority of the business was and still is the auction side of, of Sotheby's. That's a worldwide business in 85 countries, and it actually was just bought about a, two months ago by a, a Frenchman named Patrick Drahi for a very big price. He paid $3.7 billion for Sotheby's. Wow. Um, he's got a, got a job to do to make it worth that. 
Uh-huh. Wow. And so Sotheby's, how, how did they become such a big player in the art auction? And, and were they the biggest or was Christie's ever bigger or how did those two compare and compete? Well, it's a good question. Uh, when I got there in the mid 80s, we were about even with Christie's and we were about 600 million in sales. But I quickly learned that we were really selling mostly to art dealers. We did not sell a lot to uh, private collectors like the art market is today. So we set about uh, changing that and really uh, uh, building, a, uh, if you will, a retail business of selling to art collectors directly. And that made a dramatic change in our fortunes. Uh, we became much bigger than Christie's. We were about 65% of the market in a few years. And uh, we also grew from 600 million up to 3 billion in sales very quickly. So, um, and we did it with very simple things, staying up on the weekends, getting our catalogs out a month earlier, traveling exhibitions, uh, providing financing to our buyers and, and sellers, mm -hmm. just some good basic business tactics. And uh, we had the art expertise. Sotheby's had been around since 1742, believe it or oh. not. That was, <laughs> that, that was the year of its founding. Uh, it's one of the oldest businesses still around that uh, have been around for over 250 years. Amazing, amazing. And, and you know, we'd, we'd think Lehman Brothers was old. I mean, I remember at the time commenting on the fiasco there. And, you know, that was like 146 years old, I believe. So we all thought Lehman Brothers was an old company, but Sotheby's was really been around a while. <laughs> it's amazing. They had um, been. It was a, had wonderful traditions and great talent. Mm -hmm. It just needed a little uh, a little business strategy and uh, and to be nicer to its clients. I've mm -hmm. always found that when you are really good to your clients, you communicate well, you have the practices that they want, they reward you with your business, uh, mm -hmm. with their business. And that's what happened with Sotheby's. Sure. Yeah, fantastic. So just curious, how's the art market doing? What's the prognosis for the art market? You know, the economy is going through quite a bit right now, not the least of which is COVID-19 and that scare. But what are your thoughts on on the art market? Is that uh... oh, it's it's strong, it's buoyant. Uh, in a way, our success in the uh, '90s of really uh, making the auction room much more accessible to people, literally from every corner of the world, has succeeded to such a degree that you never know today whether it's going to be a new wealthy Chinese buyer or a Russian mm -hmm. buyer or an American buyer or a South African buyer. It's just a global market with uh, great and easy communication through the internet and, and, right. and uh, digital catalogs. Yeah. So it's become a place, frankly, where wealthy people can get known very quickly. Part of that is a little bit uh, unsettling because it's become a lot about the ego of the buyer, not so much about the value of the art sometimes. Right, right. So when the buyer wins an auction that's, uh, you know, maybe the highest price ever paid for uh, a piece, that's good for their brand, right? <laughs> well, it certainly gives them a high profile in an yeah. instant. Uh, they become known over overnight around the world. Uh -huh. And that, unfortunately, it's leading to a lot of good collectors can't afford to play in the in the game anymore because these newly wealthy billionaires are buying yeah. everything. 
Yeah, they just crowd everybody out. Sure. Yeah, that's that's amazing. There's a, do, does that tell us that there's just a lot of money sloshing around in the world? And when I say a lot, I mean compared to what it used to be. Is is the world getting uh, a lot richer, or is it that the concentration? Or maybe there's less concentration, really, because there's more players. It's obviously more globalized. Just any maybe anecdotal thoughts on that? Well, I think there is. Uh, there clearly are more wealthy people in developing economies all over Asia, China being the leader, but all over Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, many, many countries in uh, Eastern Europe now have very wealthy people. And that wasn't the case 30 years ago. This is a new phenomenon. And again, I say the art market and the purchasing of major works of art has become a way for them to distinguish themselves. So the art market, in a sense, has become a proxy for a growth in uh, in the really wealthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really quite interesting. Now, we'll kind of finish up on the Sotheby's topic, maybe. Did you want to talk about the scandal that happened after your departure? Well, painfully, I will tell you just a little bit about it. I was brought into Sotheby's as CEO by a man named Alfred Taubman, a big wealthy developer from Detroit. He passed away about three years ago. He was my chairman. And then when I departed after about 10 years, a woman named Dee Dee Brooks was promoted to be the CEO. Unfortunately, the year before I left, she was worldwide chief operating officer and she began an extensive illegal collusive activity with Christie's, with their CEO. I was completely unaware of this, and the courts later uh, and the Justice Department validated that. Taubman was uh, blamed for making her do it to keep her job. For a lot of reasons, which I detail in my book, I do not believe that to be the case. Dee Dee was an incredibly strong, willful woman. Mm-hmm. She literally had her name on 500 pages of illegal agreements, documents. Oh with Christie's that was turned into the Justice Department. Taubman's name was not on one of them. So she blamed him conveniently. He spent a year in jail for the price fixing. She got a ankle bracelet and a, did had, had to plead guilty to a felony. It really was a very sad chapter. Yeah. And Sotheby's barely survived. It was a nip and tuck. We lost clients. We lost uh, employees. We oh, lost sure. a lot yeah. of money. Yeah, yeah. What's interesting about that, though, is in something like the art auction business, how do you actually mechanically fix prices? Because all the pieces are different. So, Well, that's, they didn't fix the price of the art. What they fixed mm-hmm. was the price of the commissions. Uh, they they okay. agreed, uh, the two co- houses agreed on a sliding scale of non-negotiable commission rates. The commissions had always been negotiable. And Clients could uh, play one house against the other. Suddenly, they stopped being able to do that. Hmm. In one way, that's what led to the discovery of it, because a couple of the clients were so upset with this attitude that they called the Justice Department, and they finally got them to take pay attention to this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Hey, one other question about Sotheby's, uh, and that's on the real estate side. Tell us a little bit about the real estate company, if you would. Well, it's it's grown to be very successful. When I first got there, we were selling what we called white elephants, a lot of very overpriced, very expensive islands and big, big houses. And frankly, it was not making any money. Mm-hmm. We uh, changed that and went to a much more of a franchise model where there are 
now hundreds of firms around the world that carry the Sotheby's uh, brand. And there are about 15 Sotheby's owned offices. And it's now a very successful uh, business. And uh, I think provides a unique service because it, again, it's able to reach out globally to people that may be interested in Palm Beach or Berlin or wherever. Mm -hmm. And uh, very quickly they can find properties. A good friend of mine just rented a beautiful home in Italy for the summer mm -hmm. through Sotheby's. Yeah, fantastic. So uh, Lehman Brothers. Now, when did you start your tenure as a senior director? Uh, and then, of course, we all want to hear about the financial crisis and, and uh, the happenings there. But uh, how, how early, you know, before all of that, did you start? I became a director in 96. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, of course, the, uh, the crash occurred about 11 years later. So I was on the board. I knew the company well. We had a great business. We had a great company. It really is a, a huge mistake that Lehman was allowed to go into bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. um, a Paulson, a Hank Paulson, clearly made the decision. He made the decision, in my opinion, because he was concerned that AIG, which was teetering on the verge of bankruptcy right. at the same time, owed Goldman Sachs a huge amount of money. Mm -hmm. And had they and not had they not paid that, Goldman might have been in jeopardy. Right, right. So Hank Paulson was Treasury Secretary, and Hank Paulson did, it seems as though he did not like Dick Fold, who was CEO at the time. Is that correct? I think that's an understatement. They did oh. not get along <laughs> at all. Yeah. Uh, back in the, you know, this is really ancient history, but there had been a another crisis in 1998 called long-term capital management. Uh, I remember LCTM, right? Yeah, they yeah. they thought they had mathematically discovered that there was no way to lose. Boy, That's were they right. wrong. <laughs> yeah. They got that wrong and yeah. they went they uh, basically went under and Paulson led the uh the effort to salvage it. He came to Fold and Lehman and asked for a quarter of a billion, 250 million. Even back then, that was a lot of money. Right. And, and, <laughs> and Fold, Lehman had not had much to do with, in fact, nothing to do with long-term capital. It was mainly a Goldman protege or, or project. Anyway, he said no. And finally, after a lot of, of beating him up, Paulson got him to say we, that Lehman would put in $100 million dollars. That left a bad taste in Paulson's mouth. He did mm -hmm. not like Fold saying no to him. Most mm -hmm. of the other banks on Wall Street said yes at that point. So they had other other run-ins. Uh, you know, they dealt with each other fairly regularly. Uh, we had just taken a great talent away from Goldman named George Walker, who became the head of all asset management for Lehman. So there was a lot of of rivalry between the two firms. Yeah, yeah, that's something. And there was, I can't remember, I think there was an actual name for this meeting, but there was sort of an emergency meeting that Paulson convened at the Federal Reserve, right on the brink of the financial crisis. Saturday morning, Saturday right? morning. And, and, and Lehman was not invited, right? Lehman was the, was the cadaver on the table. Hmm. They had the uh, eight top commercial and investment banks, and they divided them into two teams and said, uh, you look at the balance sheet and you look at the value of the assets and see if you can come up. They gave him two hours. Geithner said, you have two hours to save Lehman. Mm -hmm. Well, needless to say, they concluded that they couldn't. And you couldn't, no way you could analyze a $600 billion balance sheet in two hours. <laughs> so the policy decision was made. 
And here's another interesting point. It should have been made by Ben Bernanke, who was chairman of the Federal Reserve. Mm -hmm. It's his job to finance banks and institutions. Mm -hmm. He delegated that and abdicated and gave it to Paulson, Mm -hmm. who was a political figure and clearly had a long and close relationship with uh, with Goldman Sachs. Right, right. Well, you, he was CEO of Goldman Sachs, wasn't he? Until not long before this. Right, exactly. You know, everybody in big government finance positions worked at Goldman at one time or another, it seems like. And he had just sold, uh, less than two years earlier, he had just sold his Goldman stock of, he had to to go into the government, which was $480 million of his personal holdings. Wow, that's something else. So let me ask you to speculate on on two different things. And, you know, I'll just tell you where I'm coming from. Like, philosophically, I didn't agree with any of these bailouts. You know, now, maybe practically that was a bad idea. But, you know, it kind of felt like corporate socialism. It felt like the big guys were getting bailed out. And why should we do that? And then Goldman, you know, the, the, the same year they paid themselves all their big bonuses and everybody was mad about that. But let's just assume that none of the bailouts happened. Uh, and maybe maybe I'm not using the correct word. Maybe you don't even want to call them bailouts. That's what I call them. But but let's say they didn't do any of that. What would have happened? Would the world economy have just ground to a halt and been so much worse? Like, just yes, speculate. Yes. What, what would that, would that have been just a death march? I mean, what would that have we, looked we like? Would have, it would have made the uh, 1929 crash look like a popcorn party. It would not have been pretty at all. We actually, the Lehman board considered not declaring bankruptcy, but we knew that if we did not declare bankruptcy that night and the Fed had refused to lend to us the next morning, there would have been chaos in the world. Um, Mm -hmm. There would have been many bankruptcies. Uh, Goldman Sachs was not far behind. Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch were very close to the limit. Look, this all stems back to a lot of bad judgments that were made about the housing market. Sure. The government wanted to see more middle and lower income people buy houses. And so they made a huge push to get more and more financing going to those buyers and, and I believe, market. and are you referring to the Community Reinvestment Act when you say that, or, or are you general, talking sort of generally about it? I'm talking generally, not the okay. CRA. No, that, okay. that had some good qualities to it. This uh-huh. was more the uh, use of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the basically uh, subsidizing mortgages, getting getting more and more people to buy houses with, frankly, mortgages that they couldn't afford. Right, and that, right. That ended up with what became what's called the subprime crisis. Sure, Lehman was not even a big player in subprime. We were, mm-hmm. a, we our big problem was uh, was quality real estate. Mm-hmm. Uh, we bought Artstone, a big provider of of, of luxury apartments, right before the crash for twenty two billion, mm-hmm. and then couldn't liquidate it, couldn't sell it off. That was one of our problems. If if your scenario had played out. Uh, let me tell you, we'd all be uh, doing something else than living in Palm Beach. Okay, uh, <laughs> sure. Well, but what would that have meant to the common man or woman on the street? Like, you know, what would that have meant to the middle class? What would have happened? How would they have? I mean, we all know what happened because we were there. But if there were no bailouts, what would that have looked like? Well, let me tell you one fact that 
There's a really good book out there that I urge your readers and you to look at. Mm -hmm. The professor head of economics at Johns Hopkins is a very bright economist named Lawrence Ball, Larry mm -hmm. Ball. Mm -hmm. And his book is called The Fed and Lehman Brothers. And he looks at it in great depth, much more uh, depth than anyone else has. Sure. He also has taken a 10-year after Lehman's bankruptcy look at all of the countries of the OECD, the European mm -hmm. community. Right. He concluded that the growth rate in those countries, because of the Lehman bankruptcy, principally the crisis of the 08, that the growth rate in those countries is eight percentage points lower than it would have been. In other words, those economies have never recovered 12 years later. Mm -hmm. So you ask what would have happened? Huge unemployment, huge disinflation, values of everything would have dropped. And, and is that because financing would have seized up even more than it did? I mean, we felt like it seized up to a large extent, but would it have been more so? It would have. I mean, look at Japan. Japan has had 20 years of negative growth or no growth. They Their financial institutions never dealt with reality. I'm just using that as an example of what and, would have happened and, and worldwide. Japan, it's really been more than 20 years, right? I get it. It started in 1990 because that was mm -hmm. the year their art market collapsed. So, yes, right. it's almost 30 years. Yeah, right. But I think uh, – let me give you one other argument why, okay. why I don't call them bailouts. Did you okay. know that the $88 billion that the government ended up financing uh, AIG with was fully paid back plus a $22 billion profit? Did you know that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are both producing literally hundreds of billions of profit for the government for saving them from going under? Mm -hmm. So these institutions, which are supposed to be financed by the government, let me, one, one uh, mea culpa, the, mm -hmm. the, they were all too much, there was too much leverage. There was right. too much debt. Um, too too I mean, much financialization. Yes. Right? Yeah. And I think Dodd-Frank has done a good job of making these financial institutions much less leveraged mm -hmm. and thus they've got much more resilience to the next crash. Yeah. 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 I agree that the, um, at least on the real estate side, you know, the banks have been pretty conservative. You know, it, it doesn't seem like the next fiasco is going to be at least real estate led. <laughs> I, I can, you know, I can say that hopefully with some comfort. Now, the other hypothetical I'd like to ask you is what would have happened had they helped Lehman Brothers like they did with everybody else? You know, they helped Bear Stearns, they helped Goldman, they helped AIG, you know, but they let Lehman Brothers fail. What would have happened had they helped that? Would it have been a much softer landing? Dramatically softer. When Lehman went under, it had a million three hundred thousand derivative contracts in place. Those contracts went haywire because they were guaranteed by the parent of Lehman. Uh, that cost the shareholders and the debt holders of Lehman literally hundreds of billions, not millions, billions of dollars. I don't think Paulson and Bernanke understood that the interconnectedness of all these institutions because those contracts were held by other banks, all of whom came in and, and tried to get put in huge claims after the bankruptcy. That was one of the more interesting parts of my time as chairman of the bank, you know, the Lehman estate was trying to adjudicate all of these claims that came in from Chase and Citibank and Goldman and all these people. It was, it, they were feeding at the trough, literally. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, right. So had Lehman been bailed out, would we have had a great recession at all? Or, I mean, we were still having bank failures of, of retail banks. I mean, Washington Mutual. Um, right. Describe how that would have looked had Lehman been saved. I think that we would have had a much softer recession. Clearly, assets were overpriced. There was too much leverage in the system, and there would have been a lot of other failures. But what happened is banks stopped trusting each other. Banks, you know, there is such a, a daily interplay between all of these organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, let me give you one other example. On the Tuesday before our bankruptcy, Jamie Dimon from Chase, and Chase was Lehman's main uh, clearinghouse bank, clearing bank. They provided our overnight financing. Dimon had a meeting with both Bernanke and Paulson. We don't know what was said in that meeting, but clearly he was given some indication that Lehman was not going to be supported because he called up Dick Fold and demanded $8.6 billion of additional cash collateral for us to continue operating that week. Well, hmm. we're not that big. I mean, $8.6 billion was about 20 or 25% of our liquidity. And once that happened, then other people started calling in a claim. So, you know, there was a lot of uh, ugliness that never got told. We sued Chase, and apparently under the fine print of their loan agreement, they had the right to do that. Mm-hmm. They won that lawsuit about four years later. Yeah. They, I think Lehman got about $1.5 billion back, but they didn't get the $8.6 that, that Chase took. Mm-hmm. So it was very uh, it was very personal. It was very competitive. Um, yeah. That's just something. You know what's most interesting about hearing you speak about this is that this really is just like every other part of life, a game of friendships, well, friends and enemies. And there's a lot of, I think the way the typical person looks at, you know, the big Wall Street game is it's all numbers and it's scientific and financial, but, you know, it's a rivalry like Hank, Hank Paulson, you know, didn't like Dick Fold. Dick Fold didn't like Hank Paulson. You know, so <laughs> that determines the, the destiny of a, a giant, you know, 150 year old company, right? As my grandmother used to say, be careful uh, on your way up to make good friends because right. you might need them on the way down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an old saying. That's that's a good one. Um, hey, I got to ask you about the derivatives market for just a moment, because you mentioned it before. And just the general question I'd like to ask you, I mean, there are signs of real trouble in the economy globally before we even talk about coronavirus, right? Uh, there's the repo market. There's a lot of goings on that people, you know, Chinese bank failures, some seemingly pretty serious issues. Is the economy over-financialized now? We both seem to agree that the banks have been conservative underwriting real estate deals, at least in comparison to the way they were before. But, you know, we've got this giant derivatives market. Is it over-financialized now? Or do we have a good balance between what I'll call the real economy and the financial economy? No, I think we have some serious issues to me, the biggest one is is the underfunded pension liabilities of our major cities and states. Mm, yeah, and um, countries. Don't forget and countries. Con- yeah. And <laughs> countries. Yeah, and countries, our own included. Yeah. Um, we are not addressing. Politically, we have just kicked the can down the road, and we have to address these. And in my opinion, there's going to be some 
very serious problems with some of these states in the Northeast and the Midwest as they fail to, to deal with this, particularly if rates start to go up at some point. Right now, they can refinance and borrow yeah. these deficits at very, very low rates, but that, that someday will end. I don't know when. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the question over-financialized, the answer is yes, over-financialized, but biggest problem being the pensions, which is a little different than... It's a little different, yes. Yeah, yeah, okay, all right, good. Hey, anything else you want to say about your book or the Posse Foundation uh, that you... I, I th- you founded that, right? Well, I didn't uh, found... Find, uh, I wasn't the founder, but uh-huh. I was the founding chairman. Uh-huh. Let me just say a word about Posse, uh, the Posse Foundation started about 30 years ago when a brilliant young woman named Debbie Beale, who was the founder, was talking to a bunch of kids who had dropped out of college. And one said, if I'd had my Posse with me, I would have been fine. Well, she called up Vanderbilt University, where I'm an alumnus and a board member, and she asked them if they would take a gamble on six kids from New York City who would not measure up on their SATs, but would be strong leaders on their campus. Fortunately, Vanderbilt said yes. Those six kids came to Vanderbilt and really uh, changed the campus. One of them went on to get her PhD at Duke. She was the daughter of a Dominican cab driver. She was became went into academic life, and she became the dean of the college at Middlebury. And today, she is president of Ithaca College at 45 years old. Mm-hmm. She is a remar- remarkable woman, and that began a whole process. Today. Posse sends teams of kids from public high schools. These are young leaders from urban schools, not all of them low income, but but many are. We've now sent 9,200 kids to college, and they go to the most elite universities, University of Chicago, Vanderbilt, Brandeis, uh, Pomona, Claremont, on and on, uh, 57 universities take a posse now because these kids come in and they just do amazing things on campus and 90% of them graduate. So that's been my passion. I've been the chairman for 15 years. I'm now just a board member, but chair emeritus. And posse has has gotten these kids over $1.5 billion of scholarships over the last 30 years. Yeah, fantastic. Good stuff. Anything else about the book or just any final comments you want to share? Uh, yeah. You know, maybe a um, question I didn't ask you. Well, the real reason I wrote the book is is for these posse kids. I also have five children of my own and eight grandkids. And I really wanted them to know that life is not easy. Uh, every day there's something challenging and difficult, whether it's ethical Health-wise, I almost died when I was in high school. I got an autoimmune disease called, uh, called Addison's disease. It changed my whole life because I went from being a st- strong athlete and basketball player, and I had to give that up. So I tell a lot of stories in the book about bad things that happened to me, a near bankruptcy when I was in my first company back in Hilton Head down in, in South Carolina in real estate, mm-hmm. all of the challenges at Sotheby's and Lehman Brothers, but, you know, you learn from these things. You move forward. Sure. You you uh, you figure out a way to do it better the next time and not make the same mistakes. And you try and be ethical. You try and do the right thing all the time. Right. And my belief is people will rally around you and support you and and one can succeed even in spite of these kinds of adversities. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. You know, people who haven't experienced hardships – 
they haven't tried anything. They haven't gone out on a limb. They haven't taken a risk. Life is a challenge. It's not easy. But, you know, every time you overcome a challenge, you become a better, stronger person. And no question about it. And I love how you point out that some of the challenges aren't like challenges in the way many people think of them, Michael. They're challenges in, you know, do I sort of sell my soul to the devil? Do I do the unethical, more expedient thing? Or do I do the thing that's the right thing to do and the longer, the long game, the longer strategy, right? The delayed gratification strategy. And, you know, we're faced with those decisions all day long, all of us. It's uh, hard to choose the right one a lot of times, isn't it? Well, I think it is. But uh, most people really do know the right the right way to go. And mm-hmm. uh, when they stand up and and, uh, and do the right thing, I'm a great believer that then people get excited about be, about working with you and following your lead. Yeah. So that's really the purpose of my book is to is to say those things to a, a lot of young people and people our age. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, your website is a nose for trouble dot com. Is that correct? That's correct. Excellent. Well, the book's available in all the usual places. Looks great. And a noseforTrouble.com. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, HartmanMedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own. And if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.